Welcome to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. Here we explore the training and development of America's leaders in the application of air power and the profession of arms. The views expressed are those of the hosts and do not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome back to another episode of Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. I am Colin Slade. And I'm Reed Gann, and we're your hosts for Commission Ed. So last week, Reed, you led us through a very excellent and detailed explanation of your experience at OTS. We recognize that what you went through is going to be a little bit or maybe a lot of bit different from the way OTS is structured now. And one way that you can actually explain that to us is you came back to OTS as an instructor that after being away from OTS for eight years or so, you came back to it to do the instructing thing. And it was very different at that point. So we're, we're looking forward to this week's episode where you can talk to us about what it was like being an instructor at OTS. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this is an important thing to, to bring up, not just what it's like to be a cadet or a, an officer trainee at OTS, but what it's like being an instructor because there's a recent change in policy called OIRSD or Officer, Instructor, and Recruiter Special Duty that was released during the the summer of 2019. And the expectation is that now there are going to be more people, more officers who are going to actively seek out these assignments as instructors at OTS, Air Force ROTC, and at recruiting stations. So Looking forward to hear what you have to say about what it's like to be an instructor at officer training school. Yeah, looking forward to it. I'm going to wear two hats as I go through this today. Not only, like you described, trying to help potential instructors understand what it could be like as an instructor at OTS, but also maybe some perspective and background so that the students can also see kind of the method to the madness a little bit. And I think both those perspectives are helpful. So I first want to go into a little bit of background on why I think this OIRSD is so important and my experience being assigned to OTS. So rewind back to brand new Lieutenant Gan. I'm a fresh-faced, bushy-tailed, brand new butter bar. It's nice alliteration. See what I did there? And OTS was so important to me. I could not think of a cooler job than going back to be an instructor. So I get, I report to my first duty station and it's pretty common to sit down with your leadership and they ask, well, what do you want to do with your career? What are the things you were thinking about? And the first person that I told that I wanted to be an OTS instructor to, they got this odd look and they almost, they cut me off and said, you don't need to say that out loud again. And they said, if you go back to OTS as an instructor, your career is over. And they were dead serious. And that really shocked me. I I did not understand why that would be the case. But that message was loud and clear. And it was repeated throughout my career. 
And so I did. I shelved that idea. I mean, it was gone. I did not want to be an OTS instructor because I wanted to stay employed. Can you explain real quick, why is it that they said that your career would end if you went back as an OTS instructor? At the time, and until very recently, the attitude was you would spend too long out of your primary career field, your primary function, that when you went back, you would not be known and you would be unskilled versus your peers, and then you would not be promoted. And if you aren't promoted, as we've described in our episode about how officers are promoted, you're asked to leave the Air Force. And there, there had to be some truth to that, or else it wouldn't be universally accepted that going back to being an instructor was a negative thing. So there was some truth to that. And that was just understood. It was known that if you go to OTS or ROTC, you know, in the middle of your career, it would very likely derail, get you off track, and you would not promote, and you'd be asked to leave the Air Force probably earlier than you wanted to. Yeah, the the culture at the time, you know, prior to summer of 19, was that the Air Force did not necessarily value the experience that officer instructors would get during this time spent in OTS or Air Force ROTC. So it, it wasn't just that they were going to be out of sight, out of mind, away from their career field, not getting additional experience. It was that the Air Force did not value what they were doing in those assignments. But thankfully, that it has now changed with OIRSD that now the Air Force is going to explicitly and very purposefully value these types of assignments. So officers who go back to do instructor duty at OTS or at Air Force ROTC or instruct at squadron officer school or air command and staff college or even working at a, a recruiting station, the guidance from the Secretary of the Air Force to the Department of the Air Force for these different promotion boards and other competitive type selection boards is that the Air Force now values those assignments. So give the officers who do these assignments a leg up, as it were, when it comes to promotion and other types of selection. Yeah, I believe the word is consideration or something like that, right? But that's the idea. I cannot begin to describe how excited and happy I am that they've made that change. And let me give you a little bit of you know my personal experience. So when I was selected to go to OTS, that was not the environment. The environment was still negative, so much so that I had multiple full colonels say, who did you piss off? What did you do wrong? I thought you were a good officer. You know, it was like dead man walking. And I was personally devastated because I intended to make the Air Force a career. And I saw this as a career killer. And again, when everyone around you is telling you your career is now over, that is not a good feeling. But I decided to put my head down and work through it. And hopefully things would shake out well. And I am so grateful that they've changed this because on the whole, being an instructor at OTS was one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. And I am so glad that 
people are going to be able to see it for what it is and be recognized for the incredibly hard work, but rewarding work that it is. Yeah. And it actually puts us on par with the other services. Like for example, in the Marines, you will not make general officer if you have not spent time as an instructor or at a recruiting station. It's an actual requirement in their policy for you to make 07 that you have spent some time in one of those assignments. As it should be, because you need to be training and developing the next generation. And frankly, it should be the best. The best people should be in these positions. And I'm glad they're making that change. I think it's going to be fantastic for the Air Force. And anyone who would ask me if I would recommend going as an instructor, I would absolutely recommend it. All right. So I got selected to go be an instructor there. And I got to tell you, the first time I drove back onto Maxwell and walked into that building, I had a whole lot of deja vu going on. The building smelled the same. I was assigned to be an instructor in the same flight room I was a student in. I was in the same student squadron. I was a tiger in the 24 TRS, and I was a tiger again in the 24 TRS. Yeah, I remember the first morning I'm waking students up, kicking doors. I'm kicking on my own door in my own hallway in my own dorm, except <laughs> I'm on the other side of the door. I, I truly had to pull myself aside, go to the day room and just like put my hands on my knees for a second because, boy, I felt exactly what it felt like to be on the other side of that door. So that was a little traumatic, but uh, we got through it. But this time you didn't you know, break into a sobbing mess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I didn't. Or, or I did like, you? <laughs> no, I, I empathize with my students so much, right? Because I remembered viscerally what it was like to be on the other side of that door. So you're like, this hurts me more than it hurts you. <laughs> I, but you can't say that. And we'll talk about that, right? You can't, we'll talk about that. All right. So upon arriving to OTS, there's a fairly rigorous process to be qualified as an instructor. There's an initial qualification training and a mission qualification training, very similar to what aircrew will experience before they're allowed to operate their weapon system. Additionally, after IQT and MQT, there are random inspections at any time from the stand and eval shop, as well as an annual certification in both field and classroom. So you have to be qualified to train in the flight room and in the field and you will be randomly inspected, regularly inspected, and ensure that you are holding the standard. The students deserve the best, and also they deserve the same training experience, irrespective of who their flight commander is. And so you have to maintain that standard. I saw flight commanders lose their qualification, and they were given other places to work. So something that we take pretty seriously, and tell you, getting that AETC instructor cookie to wear in a uniform. That was a pretty big deal. And I was excited to get that. Also new change to policy. You can now wear that on your uniform after leaving AETC or Air Education Training Command. It used to be that you could only wear that cookie while you were filling that position. But now you're allowed to wear that after you've left. I'm pretty excited about that. Something I'm proud of. Yeah, that's just another external example of how things are changing, the, the, that the culture is changing to value the instructor duty. That it's no longer something that you want to hide and try and keep off your records, but you want to promote the fact that you spent some time in Air Education Training Command growing future leaders for the Air Force. Yep. So super excited about that change. 
Plus, it's always fun to put a little bit more bling on your uniform. Am I right? Absolutely. All right. So when I came back as an instructor, the upper class, lower class construct was gone, which meant a lot more flight commander time. If you remember back to our previous episode, Colin, where I talked about how for the first quite a while, it was almost exclusively upper class that you're interacting with. Now it was all staff. Not entirely staff. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But because of that, the hours could be really punishing, especially at the first. So I lived about 30 minutes away from the OTS campus. I did that very deliberately. I needed to mentally leave OTS campus every day. So I lived about 30 minutes away. And if I have to report in order to wake up the students, if wake up is at 4.30 and I need to report at 4.15 and it's a 30-minute drive, I need to leave my house at 3.45. So that means I'm waking up at 2.45, 3 o'clock. And if you wake up at 2.45, 3 o'clock every day, that gets old real quick. So we would wake up about that time and then we wouldn't leave until dinner was over, about 18.30. That's a lot of time. That's a long day. And it's hard to be on point for that entire length of time. So that's something that you know I mentioned in our episode about what it felt like as a student looking at these officers, right? I mean, they're this vision of the ideal. Try being that vision for others. Your uniform always has to be on point. You can never have a bad day. You can't pop off and lose your temper. Some people would take it to the extreme. They wouldn't even eat or drink in front of their students. You know, just to have this aura, this mystery of, yes, I live and breathe on your fear and, you know, that kind of thing. Like just, you had to create a character, if you will. And I see you nodding your head. You know, this is something that we actually put on. It's not who we are, uh, but it's essential that for training purposes, we do our best to become this ideal, but it's exhausting. So something about Maxwell, since Central Alabama, Central Alabama in the summer is a miserably hot and humid place. I would sweat through two uniforms a day. That was something I would do pretty regularly in the summer. Say we'd have a field event and we'd be outside for three or four hours. I'd come in completely soaked through and I would change. And my students still sweaty and disgusting and gross would look at me like, this guy doesn't even sweat. I'm like, no, I just changed uniforms. But anyway, there would be many times I would bring you know, a laundry bag to my wife at the end of every day sweetheart, I need to get some sleep so that I can wake up in five hours. Can you please take care of this? And she would. She was wonderful. She really supported me. And so that's something to keep in mind. It not a good time to sign up for a master's class or anything like that. You know, instructor duty requires a lot of you. Yeah. It's not a take a knee assignment. It's not something to do when you've got like significant issues at home. You know, like you've got children with, with extreme special needs or other family or community engagements, exactly as you're describing, it is crazy, crazy hours and not just the hours themselves, but what you're doing that entire time, you are, that switch is on the whole time. You are wearing that facade. You are wearing that costume. You are putting on that act for what, 12, 14 hours a day. That's insane. I mean, that's like deployment tempo. Yeah. And, and to be fair, 
you know, the staff and the cadre, the leadership I had were fantastic and they really did work hard to alleviate that as much as possible. But there's just some things you can't fake and you can't fake being present, especially early on in training. So this is no secret. Training is harder, you know, stress-wise early. And then as you succeed, the staff presence and staff pressure begins to decrease. So the first three to four weeks of every class were just intense, right? Just busy, busy. But then as they performed and demonstrated their abilities to follow guidance and achieve standards, we would be allowed to not wake them up. Instead, only one person, you know, so like say the first week, right? Every single staff member is there waking up every single student every single day. Then the next week, maybe half as many staff would be there because they figured it out, but they still need that pressure, right? So we would always balance the amount of pressure and staff presence we gave relative to where they were performance-wise. So staff was really good about looking out for each other. I have not been in a unit before or since that was as close with the other staff members as I was in this. We really were each other's family. We really cared about each other. We lived in this cube city, right, on one floor in one room, and just a great atmosphere, great bunch of people to work with, and everyone cared about what we were doing. Even though the atmosphere was still a little tough, as we described, right, all of us had basically understood our careers were over, but we were just going to put our heads down and work hard because the students deserve it. The Air Force deserved it, and we worked really hard. Do you think that was an anomaly? Do you think that was just specific to your time there? Or do you think that's usually the case for staff there at at OTS? I hope that's the norm. But I absolutely worked for one of the best squadron commanders I've ever worked with. And I am so convinced of the power of a commander to influence a team that I can't dismiss that it could be an anomaly. I hope that's not the case. But I've seen too much. Right? I've been in units that were fantastic. A new leader came in, then they were awful. And then another new leader came in, and then it was better again. You know, I've had that experience, so I can't say definitively that it was unique to the mission. I hope it would be, but I can't say that it isn't. So, yeah, that's, that's fair. But the students were the mission, and we were responsible to the Air Force to deliver capable officers. And I can say with absolute certainty that I never saw the standards compromised sufficiently to get someone through that I felt that we were selling ourselves, you know, losing our integrity. And I'm not going to lie. There were a couple that I was like, Ooh, okay. You know, but, but never enough that I felt like I had to say something. Yeah. There are always those people that were, were just like, how did you get in? How, how are you here? How are you an, an officer? There's always going to be, those kinds of people, but we're not always there. We don't know all the background. We don't get to make all those decisions. So yeah. Yeah. I commissioned a few students, like I said, that I'm like, oh, you have met the standards. I can't not commission you. <laughs> as much as I would like like but, to not commission you. Again, never it never went that far for me. But I did. I I sat a few students down and I told them, I'm like, look, you got some work to do. You've met the standard, but you're making me nervous. And all of them are receptive to that, which is what made the difference, right? Like if sure, they're like, yeah. oh, no, I'm good. No, that's a red flag and a huge problem. We're going to have a conversation. Anyway, students were the mission. 
And it was a great cadre to be a part of. I'm still really close to a lot of my fellow instructors. Not to mention we were in it together, you know, like, hey, it's 4 a.m. and I'm feeling great, you know, and we're all there together. Living the dream. Yeah, exactly. I think that is just a, a really important thing to highlight here that, that because this is the profession of arms and we sometimes have to go do the crappy stuff you know, as part of our employment. And so it, it, it's not just a hashtag campaign, you know, hashtag embrace the suck kind of thing. It, but that's a real thing that you embrace it, that you are there with your brothers and your sisters at arms embracing the suck together and that brings you together it forges those bonds makes them stronger so that you get to this point as you've been describing where you are a really close-knit family as it were yeah absolutely i'll tell you one of the hardest things to experience together as staff was starting over right because if you think about it so the way ots was structured when i was there there was eight weeks of class three week break eight weeks of class. During the three weeks of break, it was one week of hot wash, logistics, cool down, debrief, and then one week of maybe you can get some leave in, you know, get some training, stuff that you haven't been able to do. And then it was a week of spin up. Hey, do we have everything we need? Is a class list ready? Build your flight folders, all that kind of stuff. It is really, really hard to have a flight who's just firing on all cylinders. They've got it figured out. And then you get another flight and you're like, oh my gosh, these freaking idiots can't figure this out. You know, and, and you never said that out loud, but boy, you're sure feeling it. So the first few weeks, the reason your staff is so grumpy is because it was not that long ago that all the students had this figured out. Anyway, that's just a little insight into the mentality of your poor flight commanders. They're not entirely horrible human beings. They're just frustrated with starting over. Starting over was always hard. Starting over combined with you know, the, the post-leave hangover and now this lack of sleep again because you got used to a full night's sleep in the time off between push and flights, between training schedules, and now you have to go back to that 02.30 wake up again like you were describing before. Yep. It's a perfect storm. Yep, it was. So it made it a little easier to yell at students. Not at students, at their lack of performance. Clarify that. It's not like we're not laughing at you. We're, we're not yelling at you. We're, we're yelling with you. No, at their performance. Your performance is not meeting standards. <laughs> All right. Every flight is very different. Every flight is different. Every student squadron is different. Every wing is different. There were some classes that it was just a dumpster fire the whole time. They never seemed to fully turn the corner and get where you needed them to. Now, they always met graduation standards. But then there are other classes that like week two, you're like, can we just do this already? Can we just march them into the you know, auditorium and swear them all in because they were on it? So that's something to keep in mind as well. I had some classes that I was not sure we were going to get there. I had others that, yeah, week two or three, I'm like, yep, we're ready. We're, let's get them done. So every flight, every circumstance was so different. And that really was one of the rewards and challenges of being an instructor at OTS. How many different flights did you push? I pushed five. I had five flights. I was there for a little over two years, but for one of those years, I was the group exec. And so I wasn't pushing flights, but I was still involved in training. I would still be pulled in for uh, large field events 
or to fill in for somebody, teach a class here or there. But I pushed as the primary instructor, I was five flights. Every single one had their own personality. So the program is built on this idea of delivering and instructing, providing standards. And as the students perform and meet standards, then rewards and privileges come. And as a flight commander, the control over the rewards or the privileges they got were almost entirely under your purview. And so if your students were doing really well, sometimes they got privileges more quickly. What are privileges? You can have your cell phone on you, or you can have coffee in the classroom, a number of other things. You're allowed to go to the Domino's at the OTS Chapet for a meal, things of that nature. There are some requirements that are maintained solely by the squadron commander, at least when I was there. Alcohol was still maintained as a privilege that only the squadron commander could authorize. I'm not sure what the status is of leaving campus. There was some pretty serious talk about you know, not leaving base just because we didn't have time. There was a time where you could go off base, but you had to be in blues. It changes all the time. I'm not sure where it is right now, but those are all you know, the things that we consider privileges. Everything we did, every position we assigned you to, every extra assignment we gave, every withholding of privilege, all of that was done for the sole purpose of developing our students. Yeah, I've shared this example before, but I'll use it again. I remember once giving an assignment to an individual that I knew they could not handle explicitly because I needed them to have the experience of failure. This person had told me that they thought that officers were just better. And I'm like, watch this. I'm going to give you more than you can possibly do so you can see that you have to rely on others because she just thought she could just manage it all herself. That is the type of thing that we would do. So there is a method to the madness. So this is, you know, for both the students and potential future staff, everything you're doing as a flight commander is focused on the growth of your flight and of your students. What does this student need? This student's performing really well, but they're not relying on their flight. Maybe I need to put them in a position where they have to rely on their flight. This person is struggling quite a bit. Maybe I need to not give them too much too soon. I'll find the appropriate time to challenge them. And it wasn't just you and your flight. It was all the staff with all the students. I remember more than once, I I can't even tell you how many times, sitting down with my fellow flight commanders saying, hey, I, you know, had a chance to interact with cadet so-and-so. What's their deal? You know, I'm noticing these things. Oh yeah, this, we are working on this trait. What do you recommend? I'm trying this method. I'm trying that, you know, or uh, having exchanges about how to convey a message in the flight room better. We would exchange slides all the time. Hey, I saw you teach that class. That was great. I really want to use that. Can I use those slides? I think that'd be helpful. It was all about making the students better. I never saw people take shortcuts in order to make things easier, ever. It was always about what do my students need in order to grow so that they can be at the highest level possible when they leave. Part of the training program, right when the students arrive, one of the first things you do is you go into the flight room and you give them expectations. You tell them who you are, what you expect. You also have to deliver, write a laundry list of things you have to talk about, you know, standard stuff, legal stuff, provide them phone numbers, all those kinds of things. Um, And then you'll have one-on-one interviews with your students. 
typically my initial feedback was pretty rote. I didn't know them well enough to be able to give them any specific feedback. And also at that phase of training, it was still very directive, right? You're receiving, I'm talking, sit down. You didn't sit down, right? Do it again. You know, that type of interaction. And then I would just deliver expectations. Now, as the training progressed, you started to to learn your students' personalities. You started to see how they would interact with others. You would also start to see their performance because we'd have evaluations. And at midterm, you had to rack and stack the entire flight and tell them where they were. I chose to use one method. Some used other methods. Uh, Sometimes we were required to give a specific type. I chose top, middle, bottom, third. And I chose to tell them areas that I felt they were deficient relative to their peers. If they were short of standards, that's where I would start. I would always start with, you have failed to meet standards in this form or fashion. That was always pretty clear. They knew where they were if they were not meeting standards. But then when it comes to, if you're meeting standards, why am I middle third relative to others? This is what I'm seeing. This is what you need to do. And then final feedback was always my favorite. It was right before graduation. The students knew that they were going to graduate. I knew they were going to graduate, and that was always fun. And also, we'd all learned enough about each other to ask some real questions, you know, to really get to the heart of the matter. And also, staff members, we were required to rack and stack our flights, one through N, typically 15, 16. And that is a really hard thing to do. I think we've talked about this in previous episodes. It's easy to identify the top three or four. It's also easy to identify the bottom three or four. Uh, Those folks in the middle, that gets real tough. Now, I did consider and highly weight all of the objective measures. So their scores, I took that into consideration. But then most of the subjective bits, the last little bit, right? The flight commander ranking. We had all sorts of calculators and here put in all their scores. And then we took into consideration the student ranking. They gave themselves a little bit of feedback and then the flight commander ranking. I did heavily weight their performance as demonstrated and as objectively measured. I took into consideration their flight rankings from their fellow flight members. But my flight commander ranking was based a lot on who would I want to follow? If I walked into an office and I saw this person was my boss, knowing what I know, who am I most excited to say, you got it, salute smartly and fall in line? But I would always try to check myself. Why is that? Is it because of our personalities align? Is it because of a shared common experience? Is it because we have hobbies in common? Is it because we're going to the same career field? I would try to second guess myself in all of those categories that was one of the hardest things that you had to do. And when you're giving that feedback at the end, I would, again, give top, middle, bottom, third, and then I would tell the top three their actual number. And if a student asked me directly, I would tell them where they sat. Part of the reason for that is a little bit of reservation that I have about telling people where they are and that becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm of the opinion that if you treat someone as they can become, then they can become that. But if you treat someone as they are, they will stay that way. What do I mean by that? If you tell someone that they're in the bottom third, 
I'm concerned that that will become their identity. They will wear that and like, oh, I guess I'm bottom third. And some people react well to that and say, well, I'm going to be motivated and work hard to succeed. Others just, oh, well, I guess I'm middle of the road. So that's a personal preference. You know, I had some people who just told them their number. Do you have any questions? And then moved on. Every flight commander is different and did that a little bit different way. But those flight commander rankings and their flight position played a role in their DG certification for a time. Other times it didn't. That's always kind of a moving target. But that's how that worked. Yeah, one of the things that I like to do, like I was mentioning earlier about DGs, that being a measurement of their capability against OTS as as it existed at that time. The same is true for the flight commander's ranking. When I have to do similar things for Air Force ROTC, you know, post field training performance report reviews or uh, explanation of static a commander's rankings or anything like that, I like to tell cadets that this is just a snapshot. It is not a measurement of your value as a person or your your ability to achieve success in the future. It is just a data point for you to use as you move forward. It's not a death sentence. It's not permanent in one direction or another. It is just a data point. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's a great perspective. Your students are lucky. I wasn't that good, Colin. I never quite got around to that, but well done. Well, next time when you do a a second round of instructor duty at OTS. No? I... (laughs) It's one of those assignments I loved and hated all at the same time, right? It's a super complicated emotion. And that's something I'd, you know, I'd give that advice to anyone who wants to go. Be like, yes, you do. Are you sure you do? You know, like it, it's, it was so hard on us as a family because I was gone. But boy, so rewarding at the same time. So it's complicated, right? I feel like the movie Inside Out, right? When she's turning over the memory and it's different colors and a little confused. Yeah, that's totally where I am on this one, right? I'm I'm not sure how I feel about this. Good reference. You're totally a father. (laughs) I absolutely am. And proudly. Why don't we have that conversation, Reed? What, What are some of the things that you would tell someone who is considering or is already selected for being an instructor at OTS? I mean, you kind of touched on a little bit, but let's flesh that out a little bit more if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. First, congratulations. It's going to be one of the hardest and worst and most rewarding and favorite tours you're going to have. I would try to prep them for that idea that it's going to be complicated, but that it's worth it. My last flight, and this is not a patting myself on the back, I'm just making mention of this. My last flight was the honor flight. They finished number one in order of merit in the cadet wing of 16 flights. And talk about a proud papa moment right? To see your students be recognized as the best and be absolutely confident that they are going into the Air Force and the Air Force is going to be better as a result. That is an incredible feeling. Also, waking up at 2.30 again to go and see those students who just can't figure out how to eat properly is maddening. So, you know, just kind of be ready for that extreme level of joy, and just utter despondency all wrapped up into the same thing, right? So that's something I would absolutely make mention. Another thing, and this is 
you know, more specific to being an instructor, right? Uh, don't lose touch with your community, right? Your tribe. So I'm an Intel guy. I was very fortunate. There's a Maxwell Intel Society and all the Intel people tend to get together and do things and we try to stay, keep our fingers in it a little bit. I'm super fortunate for that. Yeah, because at Maxwell, you've got Intel folks at SOS and ACSC and Air War College. And I'm assuming that these are the people you're talking about that would come together and stay connected in the community. Exactly. And I was fortunate in that. Not all career fields had that. So find a way to stay connected to your community. It can be a shot in the arm. You know, if you're sick and tired of talking about lesson plans, you know, going over and talking maintenance with your maintenance bros might be really helpful. So, you know, find a way to try to stay connected to your tribe. I was fortunate in that and hopefully others can find ways to make that happen. Yeah, give it everything you have because it's one of those things that if you work hard and you put in, you're going to get more out of it. And I still feel that I'm reaping rewards from my experience as an instructor. I feel that I'm better at the basics than I was just as a normal officer in the Air Force. And what do I mean by the basics? The basics of decision-making, of leadership, of problem-solving, of team-building. You know, all those things that we train because you can't teach something that you don't have or don't know, at least you can't teach it well. If you're going to teach it effectively, you have to really have those things ingrained in you. And I feel that I'm better at the basics than I would have been had I just had a normal job. I think I'd probably be a better Intel guy had I stayed in my Intel field. I do feel that I'm catching up a little bit there but I feel like I'm better at the basics and that's something I'm grateful for. Yeah. So you're a better officer because of it. I hope so. I hope so. I think the potential is there, whether or not I deliver, you know, that will, will be seen, but I feel that that is something that is there. Yeah. What you're talking about is it reminds me of secretary Mattis's mantra of, about being brilliant at the basics don't get so hung up in all of the nitty gritty details unless you are already capable and proficient in the very basics of what your mission requires. Yeah. And if you think about it, you know, anyone who's ever done any sort of sports, there comes a point where your coaches, you know, maybe about the high school level, they're going to make you go back to the basics. Why? Because they're the basics, they're foundational. And so I, I feel that this was a good time in my career for me to do that. And I feel hopefully that I'm positioned to have those things more down pat. I feel better in those areas, at least personally. Yeah. So Reed, you've been out of OTS for about 18 months now, and you're saying that you're much better at the basics of officership. And I want to know, how have you used the things that you've learned as an instructor at OTS in your follow-on assignment? I use them almost every day. Just as an example, you know, I'm out here in the United Kingdom trying to establish a new Air Force unit. And that's kind of a lonely and scary place. There's not exactly a book on how to do that, right? So go back to this idea of, you know, here's some rough vision and guidance, go figure it out. I've had to use a deliberate problem-solving process numerous times in order to figure out what's the next step because no one knows what the next step is. So I have this problem and I need to 
put a framework around what's going on so that I can figure out what the next step is. I've done that numerous times out here. And I don't know how ready I would be to go back to those things I'd learned as a cadet if it wasn't more recent. I still have my slides that I taught from on my computer, and I use them all the time. I haven't deleted them, haven't archived them because I use them. I pull them up, and I'll print out you know, the OODA loop tacked on to the eight-step problem-solving process, and I'll tack it up on my board, and that's what I'll go through as I'm very deliberate and trying to figure out what I'm doing, all those types of things. I've gotten better at giving feedback. You know, I've got troops I supervise. My time as a flight commander and being forced to sit down and tell someone they suck has made it easier for me to help someone get better. That's something that I use regularly that, again, I, perhaps if I were in a leadership position you know, in the Air Force, I would have learned those things you know, as a flight commander working in a large intel unit, possibly, or not. Or maybe I would have just been another intel bubba you know, with one or two airmen that I supervised. But this forced me to have regular reps, you know, having hard conversations with students. And, and I think I'm better. I hope I am. You know, at least that's what I hope. At least you're more comfortable with it. Certainly is not as hard as it was prior to that experience. Certainly. Something else to consider, and I'm going to be real careful with this. OTS is almost entirely CGOs. And if you perform well, there is an opportunity for you to really distinguish yourself amongst a large group of CGOs. And that could propel you in directions you would hope to go. So we'll just leave it at that. You know, in a squadron when there's 30 captains, and if you're in the top 1% or 2% of that, that's good for you. Not often are units so full of so many officers. So take it or leave it, but if you do well at OTS, uh, that can definitely bode well for the future. Yeah, so something to consider there is that OTS is not the dead-end job that it was once considered. That there are a number of things that you are going to learn and experience, you know, a number of skills that you will gain during your time as an instructor. Not to mention the very rewarding experiences that you're going to have with the students themselves, watching them grow and develop and, and become capable as officers in the Air Force. But there are things that you, as an officer yourself, are going to learn and gain and, and develop that are going to help you in your future career and future assignments. And it may be the assignment that is able to propel you into what it is that you want to do next. It's certainly not a guarantee. Neither is any assignment. But the point that I want to make here is that instructor duty at OTS or any other instructor type assignment is not a dead end. It can get you what you want. And so don't shy away from it. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Again, for me, because the atmosphere was different, the culture was different, it was a little bit tough. But now that they've changed it, and I'm so glad they have, I really look forward to what these units can become. I, I think it's a really exciting time. And I had a lot of students tell me, hey, sir, you know, I'm thinking about coming back here as an instructor. And I kind of had a hedge with them, you know, because it was rewarding. It was beneficial. I was getting a lot out of it, but I wasn't sure what the future would be like. Uh, now, to any of my students, 
that mentioned that they were interested in this. I couldn't agree more. This is a great place for you to go to learn, to grow, develop, and it's super rewarding. The Air Force needs it. You need it. Your students need it. So my last question here, Reed, is what sort of officer do you think should consider an assignment at OTS as an instructor? What are the characteristics? What are the personality traits that you think lend themselves well to being successful as a OTS instructor? Boy, that's a hard question to answer because, you know, on one hand, you could say, if you're not comfortable in front of people, you shouldn't do it. But I would flip that around and say, that's exactly why you should. So you can challenge yourself to grow in that area. It's hard to say. I would say anyone who's an officer should do it. The only people I would I would ask them to think about it are those situations that we kind of talked about if they've got a lot going on in their lives. You know, maybe there's some challenges with health or there's some family issues or they're in the middle of school. I think those are the only folks that I would say maybe want to consider. So maybe maybe what we'll do is we'll say, I think anyone and everyone should go, but maybe there's a couple people that might want to consider not going. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. That we could say anyone or everyone has something to gain from and something to contribute to officer training school. Yeah, that I can get behind. I do think though, given the demand with the hours and it's not just the hours. So for me, something else to consider, right? I'm an Intel guy. I am forbidden by law from bringing my work home, right? I cannot bring classified material out of the secure compartment information facility that I work in. And so by and large, most of my work has to stay at work. Yes, there's some admin things. Yes, there's some personnel things that you can bring home. But by and large, I have to leave it at work. This job doesn't turn off because you know your students go to bed at 2300. They're your responsibility the entire time they're on campus. As long as they are on campus, they are your responsibility. And it's not until they are gained at their next unit upon graduation, eight weeks later, that they are not your responsibility. So it was a constant thing. It was nice, you know, as an Intel guy to have my phone on me. My wife loved that. She could get in touch with me much easier. It was terrible. My students could email me at, you know, 10 p.m. and ask questions and I needed to be there for them. And that's fine. But it does take a lot of demand on your time. So if you've got kind of some challenging things going on, maybe give it some second thought. Talk to some other folks before you you throw your hat in the ring for that. Well, great. I think we'll leave it there, Reed, unless there's something else that you, you want to plug for OTS or instructor duty or anything along those lines. No, just, you know, shout out to all my fellow instructors. You know, we were in it together and to everybody at OTS. Keep up the good work. Keep putting in the hours. Great mission. You know, I've, I've still got friends there. So hello to all my peeps. And the last thing I will say, one of the biggest and most fulfilling things about OTS was the ability to work with MTIs. And I just remembered something. I wanted to talk about arrival. So the way the training is structured now, when I arrived as a student, we were greeted by the upper class. And if you remember, I was recently talking about how it's a lot more flight commander. Well, for the first 10 days of training, it's all MTIs all the time. And so now, as you walk out of the parking lot carrying all your luggage, you're greeted by one of these campaign hat-wearing professionals that begin their instruction immediately. And that's as it should be, 
right? They are the basis, the foundation of what military training can be. So our military training instructors are some of the best that we have. And it is an absolute privilege to work with them. Absolute love my MTIs. I would almost recommend being an instructor at OTS just for the opportunity to work with MTIs. Awesome. We should get an MTI on here and have them talk about their experience at OTS or at BMT. Ooh, I like that. I'm smiling, Colin. That's a great idea. You think you can make that happen, Reed? I'm trying to decide. So most of the MTIs I know have since PCS. I will see if I can't find somebody. I think that would be a very stimulating and important conversation with respect to the enlisted perspective on officer training and development, what it is that they are trying to accomplish. Yeah, Let, let's, let's see if we can make that happen. Yeah, that'd be great. Cool. Well, thank you, Reed, for taking the time to explain all this for us. I think what you have done here is made the black box of OTS uh, a little less opaque, shine a little light in there, help us better understand what's going on, both from the, the cadet and the instructor perspective, and the cadet to the instructor or the, the instructor to the cadet perspective. I think those are also important details that you were able to touch on. Really appreciate you taking the time to do that. Yeah. Hey, thanks. It's been my pleasure. You know, it's an important mission and we're all in it together and the better it is, the better the Air Force is and that's a win. Awesome. So you out there in the audience, we hope that you've enjoyed this deep dive into officer training school and that you have found some value in it, especially if you are considering going to OTS as a student or as an instructor. We hope that you have learned something and gained something from it. Or if you know somebody who is headed in that direction, we encourage you to share it with them. If you have any questions, you can reach out to us, airforceofficerpodcast at gmail.com or on the social media platforms. And uh, we hope to hear from you there. Anything else, Reed? Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Commission Ed. Thank you for listening to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. The views and opinions of the authors expressed herein do not state or reflect those of the U.S. government and shall not be used for advertising or product endorsement purposes. Mention of any specific commercial products, process, or service by trade name, trademark, manufacturer, or otherwise does not necessarily constitute nor imply its endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by the U.S. government. The mention of companies by name is solely for the purpose of discussion and should not be implied as endorsement. 